This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Well, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to begin there this morning, and then about halfway through, we're going to be in John chapter 1 as well. So if you want to go ahead and uh, hold that place there as well, you can, but we'll begin in Genesis chapter 1. It was on January 13th of 1984 that President Ronald Reagan made a proclamation in which he designated January 22nd of that year National Sanctity of Human Life Day. He chose this day because it was the 11th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, the ruling of the Supreme Court, which guaranteed access to abortion. And he called the day the Sanctity of Human Life Day because he wanted that day to be a reminder that human life is sacred, meaning it is holy, it is created by God, it is distinct from all other creation, that all human life is valuable and precious to God. As I think back on what he did on that day, I am grateful. It was a bold thing to do. It was a courageous thing to do. It was in many ways a godly thing to do. And since that declaration, uh, every president has had the opportunity to make the same proclamation year after year. And some have and some haven't. Sadly, this issue has come to be a political issue and the proclamation of a celebration of this day has almost always fallen along party lines. Now, this, this is a political issue. It's a political issue because we have the opportunity as citizens of the United States to vote on representatives who will then vote for life. And there are political ramifications to this. We have in our system uh, policies that can either uphold life or not, that can protect life or don't. I was even thinking this week about a new bill that is trying to be passed called the Sanctity of Human Life Act, H.R. 586, which was written by our representative, Jody Heiss, which simply says this. It is a bill that simply says, life begins at conception and ends at death. And I think, do we need to make a law for that? Well, we do. Because that simple belief that life begins at conception and ends at death is not something that is fully embraced by the nation in which we live. And not simply the life of the unborn, but knowing the dramatic rise that we're having in this generation in senior adults and the issues of euthanasia, all of these things matter from conception all the way to death. But I I said a moment ago that this has sadly become a political issue because it's not primarily a political issue. It is primarily a theological issue. And it's frustrating as a pastor that anytime we bring up an issue like this, it seems as if we're talking politics, when in reality we're not talking politics, we're talking theology. It certainly does have a political aspect, but this is not primarily a political issue. It is a theological issue, meaning we don't stand for life because we affiliate with a certain political party. We stand for life because we affiliate ourselves with Jesus Christ. He is the author of human life, and for that reason, this matters to us. We stand for Jesus, 
And Jesus stands for life. Therefore, we stand with him. And this year, the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday was January 29th. It was a few weeks ago. But we were in the middle of this series on walking with Jesus and had a prayer conference. And there was a lot of things going on. And so we didn't address it that Sunday, but I did feel like it was something I wanted to address. I just thought it was important for us to stop and to think about why life should matter and to understand this in broad theological terms, meaning this is not simply an issue of the life of the unborn. This is a theological issue in which we come to understand that every single life matters to God. And as the people of Jesus Christ, there is no one on this planet to whom human life should matter more than to us. No one. Of all people on the planet, those who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ, to us, life should matter. So here's, here's what I want to do today. And uh, I'm doing this today because next week we'll enter into a new series on the Gospel of Luke. It's my normal habit to preach through books of the Bible. I'll start that back next week. We'll be in the book, book of Luke the rest of the year. But on this Sunday, I wanted to address the issue. And here's what I want to do. I want to give you two th- theological truths two theological truths that are the foundation for all of this, then I want to make it personal, and then I want to make it practical. In other words, I want you to know why this matters to God, and then I want you to see why this should matter to you, and then I want us to see what we should do about it practically as we leave this place. So the first theological truth I want you to get as a foundation for this, and I encourage you to write this down from Genesis chapter 1 is this, is that all human life is sacred to God. I know that's simple, but we need to understand this theologically from Genesis chapter 1. All human life is sacred to God. By sacred, I mean this. It's holy. Human life is distinct from any other form of life. It is sacred, and that human life deserves respect. It is sacred, and that human life is valuable. And we learn this as children. We learn that red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. But the older we get and the more lies that we believe, the more that we forget the song that we learned as children. And all of a sudden there is whole groups of life that aren't as precious to us as they used to be and certainly not as precious as they are to Jesus Christ. That all human life is sacred to God. This is a basic biblical belief founded in Genesis chapter 1. If you're there in Genesis chapter 1, say amen. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And from verse 3 all the way down to verse 25, there is a list of all of the things that God has created until the creation of human life. And it goes something like this. In verse 3 it says that God created the light And he says it was good. In verse 6, God created the sky and it was good. God created dry land and he stepped back and said it's it's good. In verse 11, God created the vegetation and he looked back and he, he said it was good. In verse 20, he created the water creatures and he looked back and he said they were good. And in verse 24, he looked at all of the animals after he spoke them into existence and he said they were good. And every one of these created things were said very quickly and matter-of-factly. And very few of them are given any commentary except for this. God spoke them, they came into existence, and they were good. And when you get about 25 verses of that, you start to see a pattern emerge. God said, 
It existed, it was good. God said, it existed, it was good. God said, it existed, it was good. And that's why when you come to verse 26 in the creation of humanity, it's completely distinct in every way. There are five truths that are given here in these three verses that aren't said about any other created thing. And it is supposed to feel surprising to us. It is supposed to feel unique and different to us after we have read everything else that God had created with very little commentary, simply the statement that it was good. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, we'll just say to the beginning there. And God blessed them. Now, chapter 2 is going to come and give us more information about the creation, particularly the creation, creation of humanity. But there are five unique statements in those three verses that aren't said about any other created things. First of all, it says, then God says, let us make. It doesn't say that about anything else. And so right there at the beginning, we realize this is something unique. Let us make human race specifically created by the wisdom, the power of the Trinity. It says, let us make in our image. That's the second statement. You can underline these if you mark in your Bible, because these are unique, distinct in our image, meaning let us make humanity in our likeness. Let us make humanity uniquely created to display the glory of God. And then it says, after our likeness, the third unique statement. Meaning, with the ability to think and the ability to reason, the ability to feel emotion, the ability to have relationships, the ability to choose and reject, to love and to hate, the ability to plan for the future and to reason. These are all things that we have unique to any other creature, and they're because they are in the image of God. These are things that God himself has. And so it says that he has made us after his likeness. Then it says this in the fourth distinct statement, and let them have dominion, dominion over everything, over the fish of the sea and the birds and the livestock and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That word dominion means the authority to rule. And if you were to go to the end of the Bible, you would see that when God creates the new heavens and the new earth, it is true that even there we will have dominion over all of the earth. But the idea of dominion communicates superiority. It communicates a rule over something. It communicates that something has authority over something else. And so it is God has taken humanity and said, I'm giving humanity dominion and rule and authority over everything else that I have created. And then in verse 28, the fifth unique statement, it simply says this, and and God blessed them. Now, certainly the, the blessing of God was on everything that he created, but it doesn't say that. It simply says about humanity that the favor and the blessing of God rests upon humanity in a distinct way from everything else. All the things that they're said here in these three verses are unique to human beings. And this should be surprising to us. If we start in verse 1 and read all the way through, we're going to think that when it comes to humanity, it's going to say, and God said, let there be humans, and there were, and it was good. But it wants us 
to stop when we come to this and realize, wait a minute, there's something new here. There's something distinct here. There is a value to humanity that nothing else has. There is uniqueness to humanity that nothing else has. There is a a preciousness about humanity that does not rest and a blessing that doesn't rest on anything else. When I was in seminary, I had a number of different jobs just trying to make extra money wherever I could. One summer, for some reason, I worked in a veterinarian clinic. I did because I had a friend that uh, had a business and I asked him for a job and he gave me one. I will let you know he didn't let me do anything much with animals. Uh, but I cleaned up a lot of stuff. I made a tub and a shower to clean dogs and cats. It was an interesting job. But I did that for an entire summer. One of the things that was the most surprising to me, and I, I hesitate to say this a little bit, but I, I'd never experienced this before. And certainly the hardest thing about working there was not just the smell. It was watching families come in and having to put their animals to sleep. I was not prepared for this. I, I had never experienced this personally. We had a dog growing up. We loved Bonnie. She was great. Uh, my dad found her someplace and brought her home one time, and it's the only dog I really remember. But my dad was one of those weird people that believed that dogs should be treated like dogs. It was really weird. He also believed that Australian shepherds, which we had, had been created by God to live outside. I don't know where he got this. He's a very, he's a very strange man. And so Bonnie lived outside. Most of all, he had this conviction, not because it was theological or anything, but because my mother had this conviction that dogs don't live inside. And so Bonnie did not get to come inside. Uh, we did bring Bonnie into the garage when it got cold. And even at times gave Bonnie a space heater because we love, I don't want you to know we loved Bonnie. We genuinely did. And I remember when Bonnie died and I remember when I was at college and my brother called me and he just said, I buried Bonnie in the backyard, which seemed weird to me, but he did. No one else was home. And I just think about that and the way in which people would mourn over this. And part of that is really right and good. God has given us this blessing of animals uh, that we appreciate. And they do become, in many ways, a part of the family. But I just want you to know that when you're reading through Genesis 1, when you come to the creation of humanity, there is to be an understanding of our lives, of the superior value of a human being to any animal. That's one of the primary points that God wants to make, is that there is something unique about the creation of humanity, that human life is sacred, meaning it is distinct and has distinct value from any other thing that God has created. And every single human being, listen, every human being carries the image of God, is precious and valuable to God. Every human being reflects the images of God and created to know God, without exception, Every human being that lives on this planet, every single one is created in God's image for his likeness and has his blessing. It is unique from anything else. Every human life is sacred to God. But let me give you the second theological truth, and I want to build a case here for why this should be personal to us. First of all, because we're theists and we believe all human life is sacred to God. But write this down. The second truth is this, is all human life is created by Jesus. All human life is created by Jesus. People will say to me sometimes, Pastor, do you know a good commentary on the Old Testament? And I'll say, actually, I do. It's the New Testament. 
If you want to understand the Old Testament, you read the New Testament. The New Testament is the best commentary. And there's all kinds of things that seem confusing about the Old Testament. And then you read the New Testament, it shed lights on all of a sudden. So we start to understand, wait a minute, I didn't realize that he was talking about that. One of those things is how the New Testament helps us to understand Genesis 1. Because it says in Genesis 1 that God spoke and these things existed. But when we come to John chapter 1 and Colossians 1, and when we come to Hebrews 1 and Revelation 4 and 5, what we start to realize is a little bit more clarity, and that is this. It was Jesus who was speaking all of those things into existence. Now turn to John chapter 1, and let's look at those first few verses so we can see how it is that all human life was created by Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, Jesus eternally existing. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. That's not just spiritual life. That's all life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, verse 3 is an amazing verse. I want, you to, I want you to hear that again. If you have a copy of God's Word, look at verse 3. All things, all things, without exception, were made through Jesus. And without Jesus was not anything made that was made. Let me ask you a question. I want you to answer out loud. Who made all things? Jesus. There's nothing that has ever been made that was not made through Jesus according to verse 3, which is an unbelievable thought. It means that every species of plant and every blade of grass and every cell and mountain and flower, every species of fish and mammal and reptile and every insect, all of them created by the word of Jesus. That when you understand John 1, you now read Genesis 1 differently and you realize Jesus was speaking these things into existence. Think about this. You come to that really important passage of scripture familiar in Psalm 139 and you go to verse 13 where David says, I'm I'm fearfully and wonderfully made that we have been knit together in our mother's womb. It is an incredible passage of scripture. And what you realize is the one that was knitting you together in the womb of your mother was Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Jesus knit you together. You are fearfully and wonderfully made that not in some generic way, But very specifically, every single one of us has been knit together in the womb of our mother by Jesus Christ himself. This is not an abstract truth. This means Jesus Christ knit you together and you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Every human life, every human life carefully put together in the mother's womb by Jesus. They tell us that 22 days after conception, A heart starts beating. Jesus is the one who makes it beat. 28 days after conception, eyes and ears begin to form, and Jesus is the one who forms them. 48 days after conception, brain waves are recorded, and Jesus is the one who is forming them. Eight weeks after conception, all body parts are present, and Jesus is the one who has made every single one of them. Because all things were made through him, and there was not anything that was made that was not made from him. There is no life without Jesus. And read through the New Testament and see that every time Jesus is mentioned, he is mentioned with the idea of life. 
And it is not just spiritual life. All life comes from Jesus. All physical life, all spiritual life. There is no life in any way apart from Jesus Christ. And in John 10, 10, it says, Satan has come to steal, to kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come to bring life and life abundantly. All physical and all spiritual life comes through Jesus Christ. Here's the reason it's so important for us to believe that. Because we're not just theists, we're Christians. Now, as theists, meaning we believe in God, we actually believe Genesis 1 is true. We're crazy enough to believe it, that God spoke things into existence and everything was created. We believe that because we believe in God. But we're not just theists, we're Christians to which we further believe the truth of the New Testament, that all of these things exist because Jesus Jesus Christ called them into existence. That Jesus is the one that was perfectly knitting us in the womb of our mother, each individual person created by Jesus, each one created to know Jesus, to reflect Jesus, to enjoy Jesus. You were created specifically, uniquely by Jesus Christ. This is an amazing thought. And so we come to understand that as Christians, as those who love Jesus, as those who have embraced Jesus, this is an issue that should be personal to us. So two two theological truths that all human life is sacred to God and all human life was created by Jesus. Those are our theological foundations. Now, Now let me make it personal. If those two things are true, What it means is, is that we must love all human life. That's that's where it gets personal. Then we must love all human life. I mean, just, just think about this. That if Jesus is life and all life is created by him and through him, then every person who has been created was created by Jesus. And an attack on human life is an attack on Jesus, right? To despise any human being is to despise someone who Jesus knit together. That it's impossible for us to call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ and yet hate any human being. To hate life is to hate Jesus. I remember Matthew 22 when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment. And he didn't give one, he gave two. He said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And a second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The reason that's so significant is because Jesus shows the inseparable connection between loving God and loving others. What he's saying there is there is one greater commandment, but you can't believe the one without believing the other. You can't obey the one without obeying the other. These are so connected that in 1 John 4.20, John says this, if you say you love God and hate your neighbor, you're a liar. That's what John says. If you say you love God and you hate your neighbor, then you're a liar. Doesn't that just make sense to us? Once we understand that life is sacred and life has been created by Jesus, doesn't it make sense that we can't say we love God and yet hate life? Now let's let's get even more personal. If you go to Luke chapter 10, which we will later in this year, I think in the summer we're going to get to the story of the Good Samaritan. Then we understand actually who our neighbor is because it's really easy to say we're supposed to love our neighbor and our neighbor be vague. And so a man comes to Jesus and says, well, who is my neighbor? To which Jesus gives a shocking story of a Samaritan that helps a Jew. And there's two things that are supposed to be very shocking about this story. The first one is this, is Jesus shows in this story that your neighbor is actually the one that you would most likely ignore or disdain. 
That's the point. So Jesus tells this story showing that this man should ignore, walk by, and disdain this person because Samaritans ignored and disdained these people, but he doesn't. So in answering the question of who our neighbor is, Jesus says, is there anyone that you ignore or disdain? And that's where you start. Now, this gets a little more personal, doesn't it? There are some people we just tend to ignore. I think when it comes to the issue of the unborn, it's not that we disdain it. We just kind of ignore it. Then we think about children with special needs. Oftentimes, we just ignore it. When we think about the elderly, we just tend to ignore it. But then there's those we disdain. You ever heard anybody say, well, I love everybody, but I just have a lot of trouble with. You ever heard anybody say that? I hear it all the time. Oh, pastor, I love everybody. I just have a real problem with homosexuals. Oh, pastor, I love everybody. I just, I have a real problem with Muslims. Oh, pastor, I love, I love everybody. Don't get me wrong. I love everybody. I just, I just have a real problem with this group of people. I see them and I just, I, I'm just telling you, I love everybody, but I just, I just, that's hard for me. Now, let me tell you something. That's hard for all of us because at our very core, we're sinners. So all of us have, it's, it's, it, it, it's normal. And the reason it's normal is because we're sinful. But it is not normal for a follower of Jesus Christ because we have been given a new heart and new desires and new affection and new understanding. So it is normal for someone who does not know God, but it is not normal for the people of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus makes it really personal when he says, is there anyone you have a tendency to ignore or disdain? Start there. But the other truth that he brings out from the story of the Good Samaritan is that to love our neighbor is to act on their behalf. To actually do something. This is what the Samaritan does. He sees someone that he really culturally should have ignored and disdained, but he proved his love by stepping in and acting and doing something, which means loving your neighbor means acting on behalf, acting on behalf of those you might have a tendency to ignore or disdain. Meaning this, as followers of Jesus Christ, we cannot ignore 860,000 unborn children killed in the U.S. every year. As followers of Jesus Christ, we cannot ignore 65 million refugees around the world. As followers of Jesus Christ, we cannot ignore 153 million orphans, and we cannot ignore 1.8 billion Muslims. As followers of Jesus Christ, we cannot ignore 40 million slaves in the world today. We cannot ignore 16 million hungry children in the U.S. We cannot ignore 47 million senior adults in the U.S. Why? Because these are our neighbors. And we're Christians. We're called followers of Jesus Christ. The name of Christ who created every single one of them is on us. And it is not simply a matter of loving them. It is a matter of acting on their behalf, working to help, working to engage, working to save their lives. This truth causes us, what it's been doing to me all week, is to examine my heart, to see if there is some group that I disdain or some group that I just ignore. And understanding that as a follower of Jesus Christ, I have a responsibility to engage. Of all people, we should engage. So what makes it personal is that as the people of Jesus Christ, we must love all human life. But I want to make it practical. The reason I want to make it practical is because 1 John 3, 8 says this, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. How many of you know that in church, it's really easy to love in word and talk? It's easy to love in word and talk. 
I have a, a, a pretty friendly audience this morning so far, I think. Most of you uh, agree with what I'm saying, and although you don't seem to amen out loud, I'm sure in your heart you're amening, uh, we're working on this. So I think generally speaking, you're okay uh, with what I'm saying, except for the dog part I talked about, but everything else you've been good with. What I mean by that is this, is it's easy for me to get up here and we, man, we have loved in word. We have loved in talk. You're right, pastor. We got to do a better job. We got to love our neighbor. Let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. I had a lady in the first service come up weeping to me for her son, who is a practicing homosexual. And how she wonders why he was here for so many years and yet stopped coming here and everybody knows what's going on in his life and no one seems to call or talk to him or reach out to him. No one seems to know what to do to him. And I apologized for a church that often might seem to love in talk. But not love in deed. So I want you to take your bulletin. Look with me this morning. We made it personal. We're going to make it practical. Look at this bullet. Take this out and hold it. And I want you to turn to the very back right here. What you have on the very back of this bulletin is seven ministries that we specifically partner with here at Prince. And when we knew that it was Sanctity of Human Life Day, I wanted to make this about all life because there are many causes that matter to us and are important to us. This is seven of them. Listen, every one of these, we have a representative in our church that helps us partner with these groups. Every one of these we believe in. And in order to be practical, Every one of them have a table that is set out in the foyer right there and a contact email right here so that you can walk out of this building and say, I'm not just going to love and talk, I'm going to do something. Like they're right there. We've got Athens Pregnancy Center, a, a ministry very dear to us. It is a ministry we founded as a church. It is a ministry that has been a part of our church exclusively uh, really until last year when they went independent, really in hopes uh, to gain more support from other churches. This ministry needs our help. It needs our financial resources. We support it as a church. We need you to support it on a monthly basis. They need mentors. Terrified men and women come into this place and want to know how to navigate a pregnancy they were not expecting. You know they need men to minister to these men because the men are going to have a greater influence on what their uh, wife or girlfriend chooses to do than anyone else. So you know they need men at the pregnancy center to mentor They need women to come in and to be mentors. One of the greatest things they do is they mentor. They need our help. Think about Axe Food Bank on the 23rd of this month. And you might notice this if you're new around here. You walk in Dorsey and there's just canned goods everywhere. Well, that's because it's going to the Axe Food Bank. And we ask that uh, every so once in a while, it's in your bulletin and it's coming up in a couple of weeks, just bring some food. We think about Bigger Vision who feeds the homeless and many of our community groups are going on a regular basis Chosen for Life and Uniting Hope, uh, really ministering uh, to uh, those who are in adoptive care and foster care. Mercy Health Center we support and uh, is a really significant ministry. I think about the Sparrow's Nest. I love this ministry. As a church that is often getting calls for how we can help families that are in need, we refer them to the Sparrow's Nest. Because they're meeting the needs, as it says, of the at-risk population with the ultimate